Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is Thursday, February the 2nd, and it's 1.01 p.m. here on the West Coast of the United States of America. We are officially back with our Thursday interviews. We took kind of a break trying to set up a new uh, lineup of folks we're going to have and uh, come on and discuss various subjects. And so I want to invite my guest on. We'll just jump into it because we have a lot to discuss. Uh, so um, Josh Buck, Dr. Josh Buck, um, is uh, we've known each other for quite some time. So you, you've ended up That's writing right. a book. Uh, here I have in my hand, Everyday Activism. And uh, we're going to be discussing it. The subtitle is Following Seven Practices of Jesus to Create a Just World. And I got like a bunch of questions. I'm not done with the book. I'm reading it. I am, I am enjoying it. And it's not a hard read. I must say that. Uh, as someone where English is a second language, I, I struggle. I am not the fastest reader. And then... Um, uh, but this is, um, so far I'm enjoying it. I got a lot of questions and, uh, and, and I'm being challenged in various ways reading the book, which is, I think what your intention probably is before we jump into the book, let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about you introduce us, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, and then we'll talk about your education. Sounds good. Well, it's good to see you brother. Glad to be on. I love your show. Um, I love hearing you press into issues of apologetics and, um, we have known each other for a minute, man, teaching in EBC and kind Correct. of different circles when I was in LA. So it's really great seeing you and I hope your family's well. So I've got a wife, three kiddos, uh, did some ministry in LA. We started a church and a public nonprofit for kids after school in inner city LA, Highland Park, Northeast LA. And more recently started an organization called PAX. Uh, dedicated to help reach the next generation with our, our content, specifically Jesus-centered content, beautiful content. And I live in Tucson in the desert where there's no ar Arctic freeze right now. And I'm not in Austin, Texas, where the power's out and things are crazy. Is it, the, is um, it raining fire yeah. where you are? It's not quite raining fire yet. You know, it's just a, a cool 40 at night and 60 during the day. That's this is why people move to the desert is like right now is the reason why. And yeah, a little bit about education, bachelor's in biblical studies from uh, a school called Eternity Bible College in SoCal, master's in ministry from a school called Antioch and PhD in intercultural studies from Biola and specifically Cook School of Intercultural Studies. Mm -hmm. I studied under uh, Dr. Jamie Sanchez, uh, who was my chair, kind of specialized in oral history analysis. So that's qualitative research where I interviewed the survivors of the Charleston massacre to better understand how racial violence impacted their stories and impacted their faith journeys as they were affected by the event. One of my participants lost their mother. The other lost his wife, who was leading the Bible study when Dylan Roof came in and mm. killed a bunch of people. So that's a little bit about the um, journey I've been on academically as well tough doing talking to those people yeah man i brought the whole family down to um south carolina north carolina and spent days sitting down just listening to stories it's it's the type of academic research that is palatable at least for me where you're doing human research you're sitting down with people you're trying to discover something on the ground interviewing people and it was incredibly hard um i remember going back to the room and just crying 
after each day because it was really hard listening to the stories. And, and that's me, you know, uh, I was a lot harder for the participants. And so I feel very grateful and honored. It's a very sacred space to sit down with people and listen to what they've been through and what they've been wrestling with as they've been suffering. And so uh, that's a little bit about the journey. Yeah. Uh, so you have three kids and um, you, you've done all this stuff, um, married, uh, having kids, Right, the educational stuff. So usually we talk about this with uh, folks that jump on the show. It's like, what was that like? I kind of because you still have your hair, and you got a nice beard, so you haven't <laughs> pulled them out out of stress and kind of gone crazy. Um, so tell us of, how you manage that. Oh man, a lot of kindness and grace and support from the family, my kids and and my wife. Like say they were a part of my academic journey, the whole journey. You know, my master's degree and PhD were done with family. Correct. I would say the the only way that it works is if you have a family that is supportive and behind you. Otherwise, uh, the wheels fall off. So my master's was done like over an eight year period, incredibly slowly, only at night. And then that's cool. and then so it's it, possible you know, to do it very slow. Yeah. And then the, the PhD was done in four years, which is quick, but I, you know, I did it almost exclusively, um, when I finished my day job and after the kids went down at night, you know, I'd spend three to four hours and some people can wake up super early in the morning and get stuff done. Some people stay up late. I've got insomnia. So my mind fires on all cylinders from like 9 PM to 4 AM, not every night, yeah. but that that's like, you know, that's that's the prized time where i can get a lot of reading done and and honestly brother i enjoy studying and reading i kind of have an insatiable curiosity in general about the world um and i think the two components for successful people in general you know but i would say within an academic journey you got to be really curious and really determined to push through wall after wall after wall after wall because i'd say this man like 10% of the time when you're in school it's so exciting and amazing and you just love it you can't get enough Correct. of it and then and then maybe 60% of the time is just the normal you don't love it you don't hate it but you just got to do it and then there's the other i don't know what percentage we have left 20% yeah. that is you know uh you hate it, you hate <laughs> it and it's hard <laughs> <laughs> and you you can fail if you give in to that 20%. You're done. You give up. And and so I think perseverance and and you have to have this consistent curiosity in everything you're reading and doing when you have boring teachers mm -hmm. or something unfair happens or politics in the school because all those things are real. Correct. And uh and and going going towards something worth worth studying for me is is important. Yeah, because so you got you got to be disciplined. So put your kids to bed if you need to quit your job, but also if you need to look. If also if you need to, you do it over an eight year period. I mean, it, it, usually right. like I've seen the inverse, right? Like people will do a master's real quick, and then their PhD takes a long time. Uh, so you did your master's yeah. over eight years, and then you did your PhD in four years, which is which is great. But like it took me. I, I started my master's in twenty eleven. Nice. So it took me about five years to do that. But again, like I was in ministry, 
I was semi like full load. I took a bunch of summer classes, winter classes, like intensives, trying to get get it out of the way, and I transferred a bunch of units in. So um, that 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 was helpful transferring Bible college <laughs> units over. Yeah. Um, but okay, so you've ended up writing this book. This book just got released, and this is predominantly. That's right. I mean, it's 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 out of your the way you started off. It's out of your experience uh, in in ministry. You, you have a heart for people, you have a heart for ministry, um, and you might even hold some views that generally within the evangelical um, world might be seen as yeah. not so uh, acceptable, okay? Um, depending on, on the crowds, right? So totally. tell, me, tell me the heart. What motivated you to? Because writing a book is another one of those things, right? Like, it's not an easy thing. You got to be in it for the long haul. You go through the whole process. Not even talking about like writing it is something else, and then going through the whole process of um, uh, publisher editing. You know, like kind of the grind of of, of getting this yeah. into our hands. It's it's a lot of work. Tell us a little bit about the motivation and then kind of what that looked like. Yeah, I feel very blessed to have gotten a book off the ground it's been a long journey and i feel grateful more than anything because i'm not some well-known famous person with a huge following that could you know write a book just based off of followership and may or may not be an author i mean it definitely was something that was burning within me and and you're right i would say uh as somebody who's studied a lot in culture it's very important for us as we enter into the theological or biblical interpretation space that we can discuss the interplay between our own story and our own narrative and our social location and our culture and where we've arrived in the Bible and the tensions that come with myself, like a majority culture, white Christian who grew up in American evangelical conservative spaces, mm -hmm. and then meeting this radical Jewish rabbi who claimed to be the son of God, the I am, Messiah, King of Kings. And I've entered into this really cross-cultural journey where, as Paul talks about in Romans, Gentiles being grafted into the Commonwealth of Israel and how powerful of a story that that is. And so everyday activism is really me talking about my journey and coming to terms with the gospel that is, that is holistic that addresses the concerns of our everyday life and our suffering and, and mm. what we're going through and our spiritual life and coming to faith in Jesus and being forgiven of our sins and how I grew up in a space that dichotomized this. And this is a problem in the Western world generally that we separate heaven from earth. We separate spirit from body. We separate the social from the spiritual. And then when you read Jesus and really when you read the writers of the Bible, who are set in an Eastern setting in an honor shame culture and something very different than Western culture. You, you have this holistic picture of what the gospel is meant to do in the world and in our lives and how it's two sides of the same coin, the spiritual and the physical, it's not one or the other. Hmm. And so okay. really framing that from within the concept of Jubilee, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about, but that was kind of out of, out of my own experience. And the second thing I'll mention really briefly is uh, we suffer from, especially in North America, 
thinking you have to be special to be a Christian. You have to be educated. You have to be a pastor. You have to be a preacher. You have to have some special education. When, when, you, when you look at Jesus in the New Testament, he's empowering and equipping everyday people for the life of ministry. And so this book is seven practices of Jesus to create a just world, not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Most of us aren't going to quit our jobs. Most of us aren't going to get degrees. Most of us aren't going to have the time to go to a rally or to go to something that they would consider like changing the world. Yet that's what's so radical about Jesus is in our everyday life. When we wake up and we're burdened with a job or with school or with a relationship or we're dropping our kids off at school or going to sports, it's in those interactions that we can make the world a better place. And that's why Jesus came. So it's kind of the holistic gospel and really talking about that. And then the everyday person making a difference in the world. That's why I wrote the book. Okay. So it, we're starting off here theologically, right? And, and you go into this in the book. So you're, you, you start off from image of God kind of language, but before we get there, because I think it's very important. Yeah. Um, so I have come into Protestantism. Right, like so, I was not raised Protestant. I wasn't raised in the church. Um, I would say ninety-something yeah. percent of my friends are all like me, Christian friends. Right, mm. uh, especially well, I should qualify that ninety-something percent of my Armenian Christian friends yeah, have yeah, come yeah. into have come into Protestantism, um, where we're first-generation Christians and we're first-generation Protestant Christians. And um, like we had the whole kind of church background, kind of cultural kind of stuff. And then none of that made any difference in our lives. Very uh, simply speaking, Uh, we weren't in tune with it. We didn't believe it, whatever. Um, And then we came into Protestantism predominantly here in the United States. And um, that was a breath of fresh air. Kind of it reshaped our lives. It's given us certain kinds of values. Um, for me, the older I've gotten, uh, the older I've gotten as a Christian, the more I've valued kind of the historical aspect of the church, uh, and then the more I've learned yeah. scripture and theology and stuff. It's like the more I reflect on the ancients and, and what they say, like that. But that's a personal kind of hobby and desire I have. Your personal experience is is very different than mine. You're like born and bred in the Protestant American Protestant Church, correct? And you say in the book correct. something about like. Um, like your experience in that as, as, as a kid coming through that kind of this naivety kind of you had about the world speak about that, because I think that is so important to the way we deal with, uh, whether it's the politics, whether it's the individual kind of sort of, uh, decisions we make, like you said, you know, I think my kids to soccer practice, the way I interact with people, who those people are and all that stuff, where it is. So tell us a little bit about your kind of church background. Yeah, this is what I talk about in in really my introduction. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up in conservative, Protestant, evangelical churches, white churches in the Northwest, so Washington State. And largely, I had a great experience within those spaces. I would say that um, what they they train you to do is to water down Jesus for all the good things that come out of those spaces. And there are many good things. And I do talk about uh, those situations and and really what I learned growing up, some of it in very positive terms, the danger, which this isn't a danger uh, 
uncommon to all settings and all churches is that it it trains you to see Jesus through the lens of your culture exclusively. So what it does is it endorses a very quiet, middle-class, Republican, white, American, pro-American <laughs> life. That's, that's, that's what it trains okay. you to do. And what we do is we translate Jesus through the lens of our culture. And like I said, that happens all over the world. It's interesting that when you look at images of Jesus across the world, what do we do? Well, we paint Jesus yeah. and we sculpt like Jesus in the yeah. image of our, of our home culture. And yeah. that, there's, no, not, there's no surprise to that. And that's both a beautiful thing as all cultures and peoples have been made in the image of God. And that's a very dangerous thing. See, because here's the there thing are for me. It's, uh, I, I love that because like yeah, the I'm Armenian good. icons of Jesus, like look Armenian. And I'm like, yes. Um, and for me, like theologically, I view that and I go, this is so incarnational. Like this is the gospel yeah. that Jesus isn't yeah. this. So I'll compare this to Islam. Okay. In Islam, like you got to know Arabic to know, to read the word of God. If you're reading anything other than the Arabic, it's a translation of it. It's not it. Like it's only Arabic. Where in Christianity, we don't suffer from that, right? Like I can read the word of God in my language. So like when the yeah. Armenian alphabet was made, it was made to translate the Bible into Armenian so that people would read the Bible in Armenian. One of the first things translated was a passage out of Proverbs. Um, when, when I read, like, so for me, it's like, uh, in Armenian churches, we've had this issue where like, why aren't the youth reading in Armenian and doing Armenian stuff? And it's like, because that's not their first language. Their first language is English. And if, if the founder of the Armenian language was here, he would do it in English because his main purpose was to communicate the, the, the word of God in the language that people understood. And it's so incarnational, right? right? Yeah. Where it, one of the things I'm hearing, I'm not necessarily saying you're saying this, but you said that it's also dangerous. So I want to talk about that danger right. where I, I guess what you're trying to say is he looks too much like us. Like it, it's, it, uh, I don't know. Give, give a breakdown of that. Cause I can, I can opinionate myself here. I don't want to do that. Like great. for me, that's a positive. Yeah. It, yeah, it's less about, uh, well, one, Jesus didn't have white skin. He wasn't, a, he wasn't of English descent. And so there is a lie in painting Jesus white because Jesus wasn't white. So there's a fallacy to, to even claim or say that Jesus' skin was white. He had blue eyes and blonde hair. Uh -huh. so, so that part of it is, is dangerous. But what comes with that skin and what comes with that culture is is a colonial mentality and a dominant mentality and and the the we're we're speaking from a historical theological perspective now right church mm -hmm. history but what happened with protestants settling in north america is that it came with a colonial mentality that jesus also can conquer peoples and nations and overtake lands and this is something incredibly dangerous to connect to our faith and I hope, you know, from an Armenian background, you'd be sympathetic to that line of reasoning that it's not okay for Jesus to take up the sword and conquer people. Um, and so what happens is in a Protestant setting is one, that syncretism, the connection of colonialism and Protestantism is unaddressed. Mm -hmm. That's not talked about at all. And two, once the people have settled North America, which is my people, um, and we're in a church in the Northwest, we all of a sudden just water down Jesus to not be the warrior Jesus anymore, but to endorse a lifestyle 
that does not address injustice. Mm. It, 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 it's not meant to address injustice. And Jesus is a personal savior to forgive you of your personal sins, which is true, by the way, to, to set you free to live a more pious life, which is true, by the way. But what we don't see is what James says in his book, the very first book written in the New Testament, pure and undefiled religion is to keep oneself unstained from the world and care for mm -hmm. widows and orphans in distress. Right. And this connection that we see with the gospel, this two-sidedness of it, is we just get the one side. And so that would be the danger. I would, I'm just speaking from my cultural perspective, oh, nobody yeah, else's cultural perspective. <clears throat> the dangers within Western Christianity in North America. So here's one thing uh, that comes up to my mind, Josh, is um, like, so the Greek, like we get, we get all these, like the Byzantine church dominates a big portion of history. And, and I say that because I, I'm not saying Catholics specifically because that's Western influence stuff. Um, yep. I don't think I can remember anyone in the Greek church saying something like, Hey, we shouldn't be painting Jesus Greek. Right. Like he's yeah. not, he's, he's like this Jewish guy. And, and I don't know whether that's, they're still in the same region. So that's like sort of okay. Or I'm seeing Americans say that, like, I don't get offended. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not Jewish, yeah. but I don't get offended when I see <laughs> a painting of a white Jesus, because I know that's not the truth. I just know this is people's expression of this, unless there's someone that walks around yeah. saying, no, 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 Jesus was, you know, this guy was really, really <laughs> soft, blonde, like, um, my expression would be woman like hair, but, uh, um, and I'd be like, no man, like yeah. seriously, go read the Bible. You know, like, that's just like, go, go study a couple of things. You know, that's not the case. I'm not seeing, and I haven't seen, maybe it's because I haven't read them. Other cultures having the same sort of reaction. I'm, I'm talking yeah. about believers that I'm seeing American believers having towards the way Americans have expressed or Western Europeans, I guess, have expressed these sorts of things. And I'm trying to wrap my mind around it. Like, wh why? Why? I, I would say this, and again, brother, I, I can only speak from my cultural vantage point. So we live in the wake of, of colonialism, and I'm speaking from like a Western history perspective. That's why it's so much fun being in conversation with you, because right. you're representing and coming from a different cultural vantage point where you're like, okay, maybe maybe this isn't as big of a deal as people are making it out. I would say this, during, during colonialism, I'm, I'm of Dutch descent and British descent, like okay. Europe took over roughly 95% of the world. And we live in the wake of this post-colonialism and the world is still figuring out how to deal with colonialism and moving into this new era. This, this postmodern era, this post-colonial yeah. era, there's certain good things about it. There's certain really bad things about being where we are in history right now. But a part of that is art is a reflection of our culture and our theology. It's not just a reflection of our popular culture. It also is a Correct. reflection yeah, of our yeah. theological point. And therefore, it's a, re a reflection of, of bad theology from a Western standpoint. So where, um, you know, a Filipino Jesus doesn't represent the same thing that a white Jesus represents in history because of the colonial legacy of what white people have done in the world and not just North America. I spent time in Rwanda. You think of what the French did there. You, you know, you, you can go all over the world and look Correct. at the ramification of saying Jesus endorses the expansion of empire 
and the subjugation of humans that have been made in the image of God, and then using theology to justify that, Correct. right? Which is what's happened here in America for a long time. So, so that that to me is specific danger of of like a white Jesus. Correct. Got it. Okay. So uh, I, I have a personal question for you, because, and I wrote this in the book. I was like, I'm going to talk to him, so I'm going to ask him these questions. So um, you say in the book, this is the beginning of the book. Um, he said, you said, despite all the incredible, and you mentioned this just right now, despite all the incredible and not so great things I learned, I didn't get to know the biblical Jesus very well. This is, you're talking about your church experience here. Um, and says, the, uh, I didn't get to know the biblical Jesus very well, the radical Jesus, the activist Jesus, the Jesus from the four gospels. So I wrote two questions here. Uh, number one, I, I wrote, how old were you? Okay. And number yeah. two, I wrote, what were you reading? It's so good. I love it, man. When I had that realization. Yeah, yeah. Because again, I'm, I mean, I started reading the Bible when I was 18. So that's a very different experience yeah. than the, the experience my children are having, which they're like eight, you know, six, and they're reading right. the Bible now. That it's, I got to like realize that's different. As an 18-year-old, when I was reading it, I already had certain preconceived ideas about the world and the way it was like and what I'm coming into, where maybe, I, you know, the naiveness or whatever like that of like being a 14-year-old or a 13-year-old and the way you view the world is kind of different because you, you went away from that. I mean, you've spent, you've traveled, You've been in different cultures, different, uh, not just even different subcultures here in the United States, but all over the world yeah. where you see certain things, you go, oh man, like I need to change the way I expect certain things out of life or whatever. Right. Like that. right? So that, those are the questions, like how old were you when you were having this, like, like this isn't yeah. the Jesus. <laughs> it was Bible college. Okay. I was sitting in like suburban LA, right? And 19, 20, 21 years old. I had one professor, Samir Yadav, who's at Westmont now, and he teaches teaches Christianity religion there. And and he began to poke holes in in the American Jesus that I had placed my faith faith in through um, a book called Colossians Remixed, a very important book that I would encourage you to pick up if you haven't read it already. It basically is looking at the kingship and Lordship of Jesus in the book of Colossians and the gospel in Colossians in contrast to what was going on in Rome and the gospel that Caesar proclaimed. Uh -huh. And so taking a class like Colossians was really, really big for me. And then, you know, the book where I began making connections was New Testament of the people of God in T. Wright. It wasn't something that was uh, given to me in class. But as I was working through that book, N.T. Wright, and, and this actually, for anybody familiar with the New Paul Perspective, he's laying his groundwork for that. Yeah. But all he's doing as a Christian historian and theologian is saying, this is what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah in the first century. Everybody understood Jesus to be a political figure. Everybody understood Jesus to be contrasting his gospel, not only with the religious leaders uh, in Judea and Samaria and Palestine, but he was contrasting his gospel with Rome, which is one of the reasons why he got killed king of the Jews. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was an aha moment going, why didn't I know this or learn about this? Because in, in American white evangelical spaces, 
so much of the time Jesus is apolitical because of our separation of church uh -huh. and state. Politics is for the That's state. That's just so weird, man. Like I, I... church. <laughs> okay, so I Help got me. saved. I, I want to learn from your perspective. Teach me. It's like, dude, that's all I talk about when I'm with my friends. It's like, we're, we're always talking politics. We're always talking about the controversial stuff. So I was in yeah. community college and um, I, 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 I don't know. And I was a fairly new Christian and very zealous. And I was evangelizing and telling people about Jesus. And, and there's this older classmate I had. I was taking the night class. And this guy pulled me aside, atheist uh, guy, and said, hey, during class break, actually, he, he came to me. He said, hey, you know, I appreciate the fact they're like zealous and stuff. He said, you know, but, you know, there's like three things we don't talk about, you know? And I was like, here I am, right? Like 18, 19 years old. And he goes, religion, politics, and sports. And I looked at him and I was like, dude, you've just like sucked all the fun out of life. There's nothing That's else right. left to talk about. What am I supposed to talk about? I mean, those are the... Those are the exciting things to talk about. I mean, all my arguments with my friends is over sports, it's over politics, and it's over like theology. And um, and that was it. like, because again, even though I, I grew up here, I grew up predominantly around Armenians. Like it's just I'm cultured as an Armenian in America. And that's right. And but again, that's I came here as an 11 year old, so that's like you know 11 to 18. That's seven years. That's not that's not a big uh, time. But I still think quite a bit like an American, I've realized. Um, and it, again, it was shocking. I was like, this is the fun stuff to talk about. How are you going to rob me of that? What you're telling me, essentially what I'm hearing, let me tell you this, what I'm hearing from you is that in like yeah. white churches, people like don't talk politics because well, you're not they don't want to kind yeah. of think. I, w I would say there's massive confusion within white churches because one, uh, because of separation of church and state, we've we've rendered Jesus apolitical. So all of a sudden, his messiahship and kingship and lordship somehow is separate from what's going on uh, in the political realm here in, in North America. Mm -hmm. That's the first problem. And the second thing, and because of that, and because we say we keep politics out of the pulpit, and then our definition of politics only has to do with the state itself, which is a... Uh, a, a poor way actually to define politics as a Christian, then our, our political formation happens when we watch the news and we listen to pundits and we, when we are on our apps. And so at that point, our political formation happens either in the CNN realm, MSNBC realm, or the Fox News realm, yeah. and like the, the uh, talk radio realm, and how that's so dangerous for Christians to be formed politically within uh, ideologies that all they do is they siphon Christianity for their purposes. They adopt Christianity into their political ideology as yeah. opposed to having a Christian worldview where Jesus is king, and therefore that impacts our politics. Okay, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, uh, I'm saying this so I don't forget towards the end of the interview because I want to talk eschatology with you. Yeah. But... Um, uh, so it wasn't always like this, right? Like we had pastors because we, these guys wrote their sermons down and they were very political. I mean, it seems to me that uh, the churches were, uh, I would want to say silenced. I want to say pacified or something like that. Um, with the, uh, with the passing of certain executive orders. I, I think it was Lyndon Johnson, if I'm not mistaken, 
that had to deal with like taxation and stuff like that over churches. Like, oh, if you endorse a political candidate and stuff, your your uh, tax stuff can be taken away as a nonprofit. And then, and then a lot of pastors just started getting scared and church leaders to not yeah. address these issues. Um, but pa- even in American yeah. history, we saw pastors that were very, um, very political. I mean, look at the founding of this country. Like a lot of these guys are pastors. Um, I, um, uh, man, I, I want to get my historical references right here, but I think it's the first shots that I, Lexington and Concord where I think, um, the pastor, the, the, the fighting was done in the parking lot of the church, basically. Um, and the pastor had been training, yeah. like they, there was a militia, essentially they were training, uh, to shoot. They were yeah. training to, to be a militia in like it was a congregants of the church. So that's like very involved in politics and the formation of yeah. this country so, to moving away from that. Two things. Yeah. One, one book for anybody listening to that's worth picking up to explore this within the American context is civil war as theological crisis by Mark Knoll. He's a his, historical, um, uh, evangelical historian. And it's an incredible book because it talks about like, well, what are churches doing and what's happening theologically around the civil war itself. And so anybody who wants to go deeper, read that book, you know, here is a case study that I think is great. The reformation is a great case study in Mm -hmm. how Christians should approach politics, because you have this massive injustice with the Roman Catholic church. And when injustice gets to a point that's really, really high revolution typically can happen, whether, whether it's social or, or um, educational or even theological. And what we see is with the reformation, there are certain people that come in and say, this is wrong. We need to get back to the Bible. It's not okay for the Roman Catholic church to have power over poor people. And theologically they've gone in bad direction. So three groups, you have Calvin that says, okay, Christian should be playing the same game as the Catholics and they can be in charge of governments. They can be in charge of provinces. They can put hits out on heretics. Mm -hmm. They can have a militia and an army where uh, the church has the right of the rights of Romans 13 of the state itself. And we can have Protestant domains, just like Catholic domains. And that's what Calvin did. And then Luther said, it's a two kingdoms view. You know what? Christians can, can, be a part of the process, maybe like to vote or maybe to, you know, pick it, but we really don't want to be involved as much in the violence and we need to be separate from, separate from the state. And and it developed a two kingdoms view and Lutheranism. And then you had the Anabaptists and these are the people who followed, they were disciples of the reformers, but they were like, I'm pretty sure Jesus has something to say about the use of force and baptism. And we believe, believe that like Christians should be baptized as adults, like when they proclaim their faith in Jesus, not baptized as babies into Mm -hmm. a Protestant or a Catholic country. And Jesus has something to say about like loving your enemy. And so it's kind of hard to be in charge of a government and love your enemy at the same time. Therefore, we're going to side with Jesus. And these are three streams of political theology that emerge out of the Reformation. Correct. And historically, you see that everyone's struggling with this. You see this historically where we're we're struggling with the biblical data, right? Because, because we get God who establishes a theocratic, he establishes a theocratic government essentially, right? In Israel. And he's, 
that gets really weird because he's rejected as king and you know a, a human king is put in his place um and then we see like new testament personal ethics and i one of the things i've seen is that people usually conflate like personal ethics versus uh like what we're supposed to have like in regards to governmental policy um like whether you can po- po- you can possibly even have like a pacifist state whether that's even a good thing right and like right. the moral issues that will come up right. with that if you have a pacifist state and people are like committing genocide against you and, uh, and 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 as an armenian this question comes quite a bit when i talk to armenians who aren't christians saying like hey jesus had turned the other cheek would you turn the other cheek if they came and and wanted to rape and pillage and kill and i would be like no i'd pick up arms and fight and they're like yeah. wait but jesus said and i was like well what you're doing is conflating personal ethics versus like my responsibility to love my neighbor in a moment like that so but that's still a yeah. struggle like right that, that's still a struggle trying to figure this out and then you get this historically people dealing with it that's why we have multiple branches that come out of this um i want to i want to move on to because i want to address these questions i've uh, i've written let's do it there's a question you wrote that i thought man my experience has has been very different than josh's experience like i can say that i i I, like it's like i knew that and i know that but you wrote a question here as you were talking about injustice and that you were serving in a church and you guys try to do some, some work with the, with the city. And there's obviously some, uh, uh, not so kosher stuff, shenanigans as there is. Yeah. Uh, it was so funny because you wrote, uh, you know what you said, and guess what the city did with our requests. You wrote nothing. That's right. Nothing. And then I, I wrote next to it, small and local would have made a difference. Um, in regards, so I'm like, uh, like politically, I'm I'm like make it as small as possible, small government. Yeah. Uh, put it into the hands of the the churches. Put it into the hands of the nonprofits. They'll do a thousand times better work than the the government, which would, which puts me in complete odds against you know the the socialist uh, kind of arm of things. Or even if not, Democrats yeah. tend to like think government's going to fix a bunch of this stuff, um, and my personal accusation of Republicans would be their big government too. They need to relax and go back to uh, being small government. But you moving on a couple of pages, you wrote, when did you realize that injustice is a normal part of life? So let me ask you that. When did you realize that injustice was a part of normal life? When I began to be in close proximity to people who were affected by social evil. Hmm. It wasn't until then. I mean, I, I like you're an adult when this is happening. Yes, I'm an adult when this is happening. Absolutely. And that that to me smacks of privilege. And that is to say, I have the ability to engage and disengage with issues of injustice, as opposed to I'm a part of a people and my very identity is is rooted in a historical injustice that affects all of us and that is constantly on our mind. And that's a massive privilege that um, a lot of people in the world just don't have. So what about you, bro? Like, as yeah. you know, I'm talking about as an adult coming to that realization. Yeah, it was talking funny to me because, about- because I wrote next to it when I was a kid. And I'll tell you exactly when. Um, it was, I was probably five, six years old. So Armenia was at war. Uh, and and I remember this because it was, it's like, it, planted into my head because of a number of connections. But we had a neighbor, his name was Arthur as well. And he was about 18, 19 years old. 
And um, he had gone to war because he was an 18-year-old and he needed to go to war, basically. I mean, he needed to join the military and army was at war, so he went to war. And I don't, I don't remember how long it had been, but um, he ended up dying in war. And, um, and I remember his funeral. And funerals in, in that part of the world are very, very different uh, in regards to the public outcry and all the neighbors come out. It is, um, so I remember, like, my parents didn't let me go down and join the crowd because there were so many people down there of all, like, the neighbors and the buildings and stuff like that. And I was, I was looking on from my balcony, just like a sea of black, uh, and then just a coffin wow. being carried around and, and, and going, like, this, this guy was my neighbor. This guy's my brother's age. Um, right. and like trying to reflect on like, dude, that, that like sucks. And that was probably, I don't have many memories from, uh, from my childhood. And I think that's probably cause I've like intentionally blocked it off or subconsciously blocked it off. Um, and, yeah. but I was like, that's not fair. I remember like thinking about that. Like that's, that's not right. Um, and then also just seeing food shortage and my brother's having to stand in line to buy food to buy bread for like hours, two and two and a half, three hours of line just for bread. And then coming back home and saying they ran out, uh, not having electricity, like having two hours of electricity, uh, when I'm like doing homework as a seven year old, like these are like my experiences and I'm looking at, it and I'm saying, well, like, which is, which is ironic because it tends to put me at odds whenever people talk about America in a negative sense. Like I have a natural negative reaction to when people put down America. Um, and the reason is because yeah. America is so good. Right. Like, yeah. like I get that I'm a history buff, man. Like I love American history. I love just history in general. Like I get all the wrong stuff and I think we should talk about, it. but when you compare it to other places in the world, even people's like, and usually you'll get this with immigrants, even people's home countries, and the corruption and stuff like that that you see, um, it, like America is a safe haven. It's like you can, like my parents didn't have to worry about bribing people when they were sending me to school, like in America. But other places in the world, they would have had to. They would have had to bribe teachers and give people extra money. Like it's like no, re none of that like is even a thought in anyone's mind here in the United States. But the world deals with this stuff. So... I mean, that, that brings us to, like, I'll give you yeah. an example. When I was in Armenia, I lived in Armenia, I was, you know, um, for like a year and a half. And I would do, like, I would go into taxi. Taxi drivers in Armenia are some of the best people ta to talk to about politics and religion and stuff. Like, just uh, phenomenal. And um, I would sit in taxis and we'd have a conversation. And, and Armenia had, you know, had just gone through a, a peaceful revolution and stuff. And so people were thinking about this stuff. And I would, gen you know, they would ask me, how, where are you from? Because they, they automatically knew, even though, talking to them in Armenia and everything's fine, they automatically knew that I'm not from Armenia. And it's not because I have an accent or something like that. I don't have this weird American accent when I talk Armenian. Um, it's, it's because even the way I look, even the way I walk, they, they will know uh, you're not from there. And so, you know, I tell them, oh, I'm from the United States. I was born here and grew up in the United States. And then immediately they, they would talk politics. And then I would ask them, hey, this is when Trump was president. I would say, hey, what are your opinions on Trump? What do you guys think about the guy? Here's what's unique. I never had one person tell me something negative about Trump. And here's almost all, almost all of them said this. The guy cares about his country. 
And that's what he should be doing. And then I would sit there and go, you realize like that's a huge issue in America. People are complaining about that. Like they're accusing him of thinking about the country too much. So, and they were like, and then they would look at me like, why? He should be doing that. Like he's the president of that country. Yeah. And again, this is like a worldview thing about like how Americans think and how other people think about their own existence. Um, which is, I say that because I want to hear your thoughts on the way Americans generally view themselves and the world and whether we can have a really balanced view because I'm seeing two extremes, right? People who are like, America's always bad as Christ or, or Christian nationalism is a term that gets used uh, quite a bit nowadays, right? Um, like Christians should be disengaged or should have a very negative view of it or Christians should like be committed to anything that's red, right? Like anything Republican, anything like conservative, that's all Christians should be committed to. And it's like, what would be a biblical model? Because I think that's what your aim is. Like, let's have a biblical model. And what that looks like and where we can disagree even in the midst of that. Because your experience has been yeah. very different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I would say... Go ahead. Yeah, continue, man. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, comment, because I, I have a question uh, on politics on in regards to that because you you ah, let me just jump ahead okay so you mentioned there's like seven seven aspects of culture and so let's address this because you wrote government and politics which is what we've been talking about economics which is related to and you know all of these are interrelated yep. to these things right so there's work Correct. um customs and traditions which we've spent some time talking about right now language arts and you mentioned that, hey, how does our art express kind of our theological views? And, and then right. family. Um, now, government and politics, it seems to me, is probably the most divisive of the aspects here that a lot of, a lot of us talk about. But let's talk about some of the stuff that aren't, like comment on them, and then we'll talk about the most controversial aspects. So language. Yeah. And you, I, I assume you don't mean they're just, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, you talk English and... I talk Armenian or he talks French or something like that. You mean a bit more in regards to the way we use language. Absolutely. Yeah. How language is meant to be expressed to begin with, right. To promote virtue and to, and to restrict vice. And so we talk about fruits of the spirit and the way in which that we speak. And so language, I mean, language is argued to be the building block of any society, civilization, and any culture. And, uh, um, the communication, whether whether we're drawing, whether we're writing on a wall, whether we're mm. speaking, language is the building block on which we understand everything. A lot of anthropologists argue that. Yeah, so um, I, I got a guy in Armenia who's uh, creating Armenian content for a Pagia Center, and uh, he, he put up a post of it. He's learning English. He knows Armenian and Russian. He's learning English. And he put up a post of it, and it was a picture of the Tower of Babel, and it said some idiots... <laughs> some idiots did this and now I'm forced to learn three languages. Um, right. So, so even in the biblical narrative, like language in that sense is a result of human rebellion against God. Um, and, 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 and can it be redeemed essentially? Maybe, maybe we can go and take this into a place like Acts 2 where it seems like God is the one reversing Babel. Uh, where people can speak in different languages and hear them in their own languages. But um, so you talked about cross-cultural language. We can both talk English, 
And we can use, both of us can use the word justice. What does that mean from what I mean when I say justice, from what you mean when you say justice? And then let's say what uh, the the church you were pastoring here uh, uh, was uh, predominantly in a, was a Hispanic neighborhood, correct? Um, And what they would mean when they would say the word justice. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. For instance, in in Spanish, righteousness is translated justice. And as we know, there's a huge debate over what righteous and righteousness means. But in Spanish, immediately it's translated justice, where in English, it's like we're we're separating these words. And so for anybody checking out footnotes, one of my footnotes is to say within the Hebrew language and the Mm -hmm. way in which the biblical writers talk about righteousness, it's similar to justice. And those can be interchangeable depending on uh, how you translate the Hebrew into English. And so I would say biblically, one, righteousness and justice are interchangeable. Armenian is the same way. There you go. There you go. For me, I'm trying to understand what justice is in the light of the Bible. So in Luke chapter four, and this is in chapter two and three of the book, I talk about Jubilee and, and this cons, Hebrew concept of Jubilee uh, Jesus used to frame his entire gospel. And from there, we can get to what does justice mean? So in Leviticus 25, we see God tell his people to institute the year of the Lord's favor or Jubilee. And in mm-hmm. that, it was this crazy social, political, economic reordering where he tells his people, uh, you can go back to your original land. If you're a slave, you're set free. There's no more predatory lending. All the animals in the land get to rest for a certain amount of years. And cool. every 40, 50 years this happened. This was the year of Jubilee. And we have no data in the Bible to see that God's people actually ever did that. This, this reordering top-down political yeah. which is really sad, right? It would be super great in America if that happened every 40, 50 years and like our credit cards were canceled. It's pretty amazing what God well, we did. We sort of have and it says that stuff when it comes to like bankruptcy and stuff, no? Isn't What's like bankrupt, doesn't like, like if you claim bankruptcy, it goes away like after seven years? Like, yeah, so we sort yeah. of have I don't that know stuff. Stuff. It's something like that, right? Yeah. And so... The interesting thing is we move forward from Leviticus 25 to Isaiah 61, and all of a sudden Isaiah brings up Jubilee in the context Mm. of the Messiah. Okay, the year of the Lord is upon me, proclaim liberty to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, very Jubilee language. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Year of the Lord's favor means Jubilee. It's interchangeable. Mm -hmm. And then in Luke 4, Jesus picks up the Isaiah 61 scroll at the very beginning of his ministry, and he reads it and then he sits down and he says today this has been fulfilled in your hearing they get angry at jesus they try to kill him as he continues to explain what he means by that and here's the main point of the book for those who follow jesus who are trying to proclaim the gospel of jesus let's let jesus define what the gospel means to begin with and at the very beginning of his ministry in the gospel of luke he defines for us what the gospel is and it is spiritual life and social flourishing so what is justice it is spiritual life and it is social flourishing 
It okay. is these two things connected. It is the spiritual and the physical. It is the spiritual and the social. It's those two things combined and connected. It's not dichotomizing them. So from there, we have to see the gospel as activating us in the world towards making the world a better place, both spiritually and physically. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. Excellent. Look, look. So I, don't, I think we're probably like in, in like full on agreement in this, because like one of my things when it comes sure. to the gospel is when Jesus comes on the scene in the gospel of Mark, <clears throat> he says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And for me, the oh. kingdom is here. The kingdom is expanding. We are in the kingdom. But that leads me in certain ways, theologically, to do certain things. Personally, Arthur, right? Uh, so that, that impacts my eschatology. That impacts like the power in which I move as a Christian. That impacts me believing that things like the gifts are still active. Uh, impacts like, so things of that sort, right? Um Yep. But at the same time, I realize there's conflict, there's a counter kind of punch to that, um, how I respond to politics instead of like, this is why I can't agree, even though I'm sympathetic towards my friends who are like pacifists, who are like, you know, this is Babylon, like leave Babylon to Babylon kind of thing, you know, pray for Babylon. Yeah. But and I'm like, well, I, I feel like I need to be involved in Babylon a little bit. Uh, like it is Babylon, yeah. but I think I got to be involved because we're, we're, we're taking over Babylon, right? That's uh, like theologically, <laughs> that's where I'm coming at it here. You wrote here, um, when humans cultivate the world in justice, people protect each other. Everybody has enough to eat. Judges make the right decisions. Rights are extended to everyone. Mutual respect is a common value. Humans worship God above all. Punishment leads to restoration. Power is used for the uplifting of others. The Imago Dei is valued in everyone. And I want to amen this, right? like desire-wise. I'm like, yes, like that's, that's exactly what it looks like to live in a kingdom under God. But then what I wrote that's next right. to it is, uh, seems like there is no sin. Right, like it's it it seems to me like this this is the sort of thing that happens when sin is not involved, when human rebellion is still not a thing towards God. Like ideally, this is the yeah. case, but then it's like cool, yeah. um, but sin is still in the issue. Like, how do you deal with that? How do you how do you try to accomplish what you're saying here? And us yeah. going forward to that, and then like how dirty politics are, how in some cases, how dirty church politics are and then trying totally. to establish this sort of a thing. Like, how do you do it's it? It's great. I mean, <laughs> right before that, I, I talked about sin influencing aspects right. of culture and how yes. the fall threw everything off. And so as you read that quote, it, it is very aspirational, right? That's yeah. where we're aiming. That's where we're going. That's like Jesus saying, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth yeah. as it is in heaven. He knows sin is present. Jesus knows sin is continuing going to continue with us not only in our bodies but in our in our culture and in our systems our families and government and politics and all those different things and so the point of the book is to say regardless of how involved you are going to be in politics in government in local politics let's say your you know parent teacher association at your school let's say you're too busy for that there are practices that jesus gave us on a daily basis that we can we can enact to make the world a better place, period, full stop. Like 98% of the world will never have the access that we're talking about to get involved to the degree Correct. to change all 
everything up here. And Jubilee in the Old Testament, it was top down Jubilee. And then in Luke 4, we see bottom up, empowering the marginalized and the poor to say, in your everyday life, you can act in Jubilee through love and forgiveness and nonviolence and mobilizing with the church. It's the seven practices. And it's, you know this, bro. I picked seven things. We could pick 50 practices of Correct. Jesus, right? Correct. Right? And you would have picked, like, listen, bro, if you would have wrote the same book, you would have picked probably four different practices too, because we're, we drift towards different things from the ministry of Correct. Jesus. And we need to live like Jesus on a daily basis. And chapter three says how to create social change. If all you can do is live your day like a normal person and you can't make many changes to your life, you can still make a difference by mobilizing with like-minded people from the bottom up. And this is, this is my bias politically speaking to your question about like, what do we do politics wise? Yeah. And this is very similar to what you said being local. It's the same language. We're meant to be political from the bottom up, not the top down. So the question is, to what degree does God want us to be in the top down? Presidents and yeah. prefects and, a, you, know, I, you know, that's a really difficult question to answer. But what I would say is it's very clear that we as Christians are meant to influence from the bottom up. Okay, so that leads me to this. To, and to... that's our everyday life building up a better world. So this leads me to the following question. This is stuff we've seen in the in the in the news and kind of it's 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 becoming, in my opinion, a, a little um, becoming too much because I've seen kids, I've seen parents, I've seen non-Christian parents pull their kids out of school over this stuff, over the LGBTQ kind of stuff, over the transgenderism sort of drag queen shows and all this stuff. Like th these are again, um, we homes we're part of a homeschooling co-op. Uh, for various reasons, not just, that's not just a thing. But in the midst of that, I've seen like all these other people who are culturally conservative because they're Armenians saying, we're not going to tolerate this stuff. Um, and then you get Christians who are showing up and voicing their opinions in like school board meetings and saying, hey, what are you guys doing here? Right, because they're trying to influence yeah. culture from the bottom up, but then it becomes national news, it becomes kind of crazy, and then they're, they're, they're like branded as these these hateful kind of sort of things. So I don't know what your eschatology is, but then as I'm listening and like the, and you correct me here, as I'm listening and kind of go, I'm like, dude, you should like, if you're not, you should be like a post-millennial theonomist <laughs> in, 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 the, in, in the sense of like, if we're going to influence it bottom up, you want to implement a sort of laws that um, like God has in place. Like I, I wouldn't have an issue with what you're talking about in regards to Jubilee. I wouldn't have an issue in regards to um, uh, having like a social net for like, you know, uh, whatever our contemporary model of that would be that God sets up for the alien and the, um, and the poor person in Israel to pick up like gleanings. Um, like we should have something like that. Right. Uh, forgive people's debts, um, reset a certain kind of thing to them so that they have the ability, you know, right? So, so tell me about your eschatology because I think that's like impacted and like how the gospel and then that's very involved in politics, what you're talking about. You're not talking about Christians removing themselves, but you're talking about them being involved in a certain kind of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'll answer it a few different ways. First, what I mean by the bottom up is from yeah. the work of the local church up. 
Okay. We're infusing Jubilee and neighbor love and all those things into culture. And so before we even get to how involved are we in, in changing culture through politics and through government, we have to say it's explicit biblically over and over and over again that Jubilee and the gospel is meant to be infused from the work of the local church up. Okay. So are we as Christians highly involved in local churches infusing Jubilee into our neighborhood and our community? and those around us. And I think a lot of Christians aren't. So that's the first thing is before we okay. talk eschatology, before we talk, okay. are we going to influence anything up here? We have to be highly involved in the local church. And I'll say this, you know, I, I have a chapter on mobilization. It's about the local church and how the church reacted to pandemics in the first few centuries, mobilizing for works of mercy and justice from the bottom up that they considered holiness. You know, they consider that an outpouring of their pure and undefiled religion. So are we doing that in our local settings or are we getting super caught up in, in the politics that is oh. super toxic that we live in today? I think that's that's the first thing. Okay. You know, speaking Be to eschatology. Before you, before you go into before. the eschatology, here's one thing that is very interesting to me. And I think um, Christian, I, I want to... Stated because I think a lot of people are unaware of it, the American Church, American Evangelical Church, I should say, is by far I think uh, one of the, if not the most generous churches, maybe in the history of the world, and I I mean that financially. I mean that in regards to the amount of Christian organizations in the United States that are caring for the needs of the world. Um, yeah in regards to ministries they're funding, pastors, like everywhere you can go in the world, there's you're going to find like an American missionary there somewhere. You're going to find uh, an American, uh, at least um, funded sort of missions uh, thing happening where the church is funding all this stuff. I got friends that are doing ministry in the Middle East and so do you. And it's like being funded by like local, like 20, 30 person churches. Right? Not mega churches, yeah. not like billions of dollars of whatever. Like a bunch of really, really small churches are sending money to these people to be able to do the ministry, hospitals, orphanages, X, Y, and Z. Um, and so that's the sort of stuff I'm trying to like, we're doing that globally, it seems to me. Um, when I say we, I mean the American church is doing that. Um, but also we are not paying attention to certain things that are maybe closer at home to us yeah i think that's a lot of the challenge right i would agree with you that there is a huge spirit of generosity infused within the evangelical consciousness and and focus on mission mm. i would say that largely one is dependent on the excess of resources we have here Correct. as panera bread throws out a ton of food americans have a huge excess of resources that we mm. can allocate our 10% towards that, which is great. I'm not taking away from that. And second, like you said, and here's the criticism, uh, are those resources being spent locally on neighbor love type initiatives in our own local setting? Because it's much easier to do a short-term short -term mission trip to Africa than it is to address yeah. the injustices that are four miles down the street in a neighborhood that your family would never live in or move to. It's just way harder and more difficult of course. Um, in that sense. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus completely confronting our conception of neighboring, 
right? Where a Samaritan loves a Jew on the side of the road. What does that look like in North America? That's a really important question. Okay. Yeah. You know, so I think and then I got a couple escal- of questions people have written here. So sounds good, man. I'll, I'll try and be brief. I mean, I, I taught no, look, revelation time wise, time wise. You tell me, I mean, if you got to go, you got uh, I got, I got about 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, yeah. I taught, you know, I taught eschatology revelation at, at Eternity Bible College. Um, my textbook was Reading Revelation Responsibly by Gorman, um, a Roman Catholic theologian. Uh, you know, I would, I would say um, I don't fit into the eschatological categories that are handed to us within okay. Protestantism because they've failed us and they've failed us historically. Let me give you an example. So, and and again, I'm speaking from Western church history. In the Reformation times, it largely was all millennial and that the kingdom was here, it's gonna be restored, it's gonna be Mm -hmm. great, awesome. And a lot of that had to do with the enlightenment and the printing press, and it seemed like history was turning in a more enlightened intellectual direction and so that informed the culture informed the eschatological position. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, around the time of World War I, uh, we were largely post-millennials in that we thought the world was getting better, things were improving, and World War I was meant to be the war to end all wars. So many evangelical theologians swung the pendulum towards post-millennialism, Jesus is returning soon, things are getting better. Guess what happened around World War II? The cynicism of modernity kicked in to say, yeah. we have enough machines to feed everybody in the world. We have enough guns to quote protect everybody in the world. We have enough philosophers and thinkers to outthink the problems of our world, but we're in another world war. And so the theologians swung the pendulum to pre-mill to say things are going to get worse before yeah. Jesus gets back because that will, that's what we're seeing. What, what does that mean from a, like, what can we learn historically from that? Our yeah. culture is dictating our eschatology more than the Bible is. Now, here is my argument. It's because the apocalyptic genre is meant to be hard to understand okay if all of the jews didn't get daniel 7 that was their revelation okay <laughs> daniel yes. 7 in the time of jesus and the pharisees the sadducees the essenes and the zealots all interpreted it wrong okay yeah. why do we think that we understand revelation so well why do we think that we can fit in fit it into our modern categories of pre post ah da 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 and then all the offshoots of that to me we're applying a modernist lens to an ancient beautiful mysterious yet clear text (laughs) that we call revelation so that's listen as i talk about eschatology that's my bias that's my interpretation so what is clear about revelation and that's yeah. where I pick up reading Revelation responsibly. I think it's yeah, a I mean, critique on empire. It's <laughs> people not faithful to follow Jesus. It's a Jesus wins and every tear is wiped away. Correct. And so I'm very careful to put a theological category on my eschatology. So what's my biblical understanding? And it's 
so some it, type of inaugurated technology, dude. It's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Get to work now and let's figure it out. Yeah, the, the reason why I asked that is because, <clears throat> again, in, in recent American life and politics, I've seen Christians, um, and I, I frankly, you know, obviously resonate with a lot more with um, the conservative arm of it. Uh, but there's plenty of stuff, obviously, I don't, I don't like about it. Like, you feel conflated, right? Now, the, the Christians around me that I know feel conflated the same way I feel conflated because it's like, hey, these dudes are standing up. Th- these guys on this side are standing up for a lot of biblical stuff. Um, the stuff they're standing on, uh, the, the stuff that they should be standing on that are biblical stuff that they're not, like we can actually deal with it uh, because they're more of like social issues rather than moral issues. Where the folks on the other side are not accepting the moral issues at all, but really stressing the the social issues, where I'm like, but I'm not even fully sure that the social solutions they have is a good solution. Yeah. Right. So the example that we spoke about was, so if I'm looking at like Democrats, it seems to me that the social they they want to solve all the social issues by having the government take care of it. I'm allergic to big government. Okay, my parents went through the revolution in Iran, um, resulting yeah. from a big government to a bigger government. Uh, they came to Armenia to a communist Armenia, gigantic government, um, and so and then I, they saw and I saw kind of the revolution in Armenia, and then like end up in the United States where it's like, wow, you go to the store and there's so many things on the uh, on the shelves you don't know what to do with your yeah. life, right? And um, and so for me, it's like, I don't ever want big government solving my, my issues. Um, if I have an issue, and this comes culturally as well, if my friend has an issue, it's sort of like my responsibility culturally to care for the needs of my friend. Now, that's just not cultural yeah. because I think my culture is influenced by Christian ethics. So it's Christianity. It's, it's us doing it in the local church setting to whatever, however far our arms can stretch as a church to care for those things. And then, yep. but as long as when it comes to the politics of it, I'm good with the moral stuff. Like if there's a, we want to use biblical values or biblical ethics or something like that, we can, but like major moral issues, which are actually at the forefront of our culture. And then like it or not, we have to deal with it because you have little kids I have little kids. We educate our kids a certain way and we want them to grow up to be responsible individuals and citizens and stuff like that, loving, caring. Um, and and if they're going to become Christians, to be Jesus-following, Jesus-loving folks. Like, that's your heart, that's right. my heart. That's And any Christian I know, that's their heart. Right? But yet, we yeah. sit across each other and we're, we're you know, kind of going after each other on, on a lot of these political issues. And it's like, well, let's start where we all agree on. It's like, this is a mess and we want to deal with it because it might mean that we stand in the middle and tell both sides, you guys are all wrong. Yeah. Right. That's that, like, yeah. I don't know what your stance on that is, uh, whether you're in agreement with me on that or not. Um, it's like, should, should Christians be leaning one way or another or are we just going to be kind of what you were saying earlier that the church culture you grew up is like, we don't really deal with the political stuff. What you're saying is, no, Jesus was very political. We have to talk about the political stuff, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. And this is, this will be our part two, hopefully, when I come back. But how do we define politics? 
and then how do Christians engage politically in a meaningful way? Uh, that's outside of the scope of the book. You know, I don't endorse cool. a party, a platform, a person with like an, an American agenda, but I do think it's important to figure out how we engage. And I do agree with what you said in terms of the challenges and, and how difficult it is to know what to do. Absolutely. I want to throw some questions your way. Um, Let's do it. Rapid um, fire, bro. Yeah. What do uh, what does a Christian who views politics in light of Christ's kingdom on earth look like? What would be some of the political issues they would be more vocal in or about in comparison to today's average Christian conservative? So good. Yeah, I, I won't contrast it with the left or the right or conservative or liberal or whatever. Yeah. I think we have to... Um, I would say this, read Luke and Acts looking to define what Jesus means by poor. So when mm -hmm. Jesus says, I've come to bring the gospel to the poor, uh, we read, uh, that's the manifesto statement. And so reading Luke and Acts, who are the people that Jesus and the early church tend are characterized by love for and love towards? And I think we need to prioritize those those people as we figure out what that means in our culture. Okay. I think that's important. Looking at what James says, orphans and widows, like how do we translate that into our own culture today? And I think you can look at the judgment in Matthew, the sheep and the goat. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, an immigrant. You let me in. So listen, Jesus is very explicit as a king and as our Lord and saying, these are people that you need to you need to see my face you need to see my body when you love and you care for those people these are the people that you need to be sensitive to care for and love and what i would say is before we think about politics from the top down we have to think from the bottom up which is in our local churches how are we caring for those people? well that would start that with our families be, what you're essentially saying is start within your families and then it moves on to your local church um, and, and then uh, yeah, I'm with you, man. Yeah, your families, your local church. So therefore, that has to be 70% of our effort. And then the 30 other percent of the time we have is to say how we can get further up into our social systems. Okay. Um, buddy says, I went to Morocco in 2018 and I never got a positive reaction to Trump. They all hated him. That's very interesting. <laughs> I <opposed> to my, <laughs> my interaction. Love um I, that's probably something good to, to like dig into and see what's going on. Who, who did he offend there and who did he not offend there or whatever like that. Um, here's a tough one. And, and uh, is America systematically racist? And, and I'm going to comment on this as well. So is America systematically racist? If so, are Christian conservatives indifferent? Yeah. And I'll tell you. I, listen. Story. Okay, yeah, my, my asterisk before I answer is I, I'm, I'm not a thought leader in this conversation. Um, so I'll answer this from the research I've done within my PhD and talking to, talking to um, African-Americans who have, Christians, fellow brothers and sisters who have shared, they've communicated to me that absolutely, yes, America, um, was built on a foundation of racism. I would say biblically and theologically, when you do the research, I gave one book before, Civil War is Theological mm -hmm. Crisis. Uh, you look at the Curse of Ham and the theologies that were developed there. You look at um, Christian Imagination Jennings, who wrote an important book talking about our country. We certainly have been built on a racist 
foundation. So we're like, it, it is from a system wide level, the degree to which it currently marginalizes and affects people, I think is not something that I can answer because I'm not a part of that population and I haven't done that research. Yeah. Um, are we indifferent towards it? Yeah. Well, I'll say this, you know, you're indifferent to any injustice that doesn't affect you over time. So we're, you're susceptible to being indifferent to anything that doesn't affect your body, your family, your people, your church. Therefore, the solution honestly isn't to try and figure out that question, but be in relationship with fellow brothers and sisters who are different than you in your church, in your community that come from a different perspective. I'll say this, man, spending time in Glendale with the Armenian community, I learned so much about humanity and who I am and who I should be in the world by um, spending time with Manny and Aster, knowing you. Uh, I mean, Emil has been a huge impact on my life and it's changed my perspective on the world and on genocide. Like mm. your people have completely changed my per perceptions on what genocide is and isn't and what the American response should be. And that same thing should happen with our African-American brothers and sisters. Yeah, amen to that. Yeah, it's so funny because, like, I, I can very confidently say that um, I've experienced racism here in America, um, uh, specifically, like, in, in Glendale and stuff like that. And, and and I mean that, like, from cops and stuff. But I've also seen the complete opposite of that, which which is, again, weird. It's, it's like, it, the question yeah. comes down to, is it, like, the individual um, that's like this? Um, and, again, that's my experience, and that's within a very small kind of confines. Um, yeah. But even like being a bald guy, uh, you know, driving through a certain kind of neighborhood and being confused for, you know, like an, like a Hispanic bald guy and I'm being pulled over by cops. It's like, that's happened to yeah. me, you know, going home from church. Like that's literally like, where are you going? It's like going home from church. It's like, you didn't expect that to come out. Right. Um, but, uh, but then, like, generally, my response to that has been, these, these are just, like, really lousy individuals uh, that I've interacted with yep. um, rather than the system. But has the system, could the system, like, systems always change and develop and, and, and you can, you know, towards good or bad. Um, I would say that's very difficult. I would say there's, there's definitely times uh, where it's been more so than it is now. And one of the cool things about America, and this, this gives hope to me um, as an immigrant in this country, it gives hope is that America has this unique way of self-improvement and, and, and to be a model uh, to the rest of the world. Because a lot of people in different countries look at and, and, and look to American politics as a, as a place of hope. Like, hey, you guys made things better in this way and that way. And we can as well. Um, yeah. And... Uh, we have in America made things better and there's a lot more to go. But again, the Christian always lives in this conflict yeah. zone of like, we're still sinners. Like, yes. We're, we're going <laughs> yeah. to do something real stupid somewhere, man. Uh, and, and just mess it up. Um, yeah. Josh, let's, let's finish on this note. Uh, because I don't just want to talk about the, the, these giant things and our time's coming. And then, yeah, I, I think we'll have you back on because I want to discuss these things, especially the theology of it uh, quite a bit more. Um, what do you want people to get out of this book? Now, let them buy it and read it. And they'll yeah. it. But um, what's like the main thing you want them to get out of this book? 
and um, and then maybe a couple of opinions on what we can very simply do, right, uh, after this interview. It's like, wh- what are the things I can do in my life that moves me closer yeah. towards something like that? I love it. Listen, I hope that people get to know Jesus better by reading the book. Anybody who cares about justice, activism, politics, you like it, you don't, all, all the things that are hard to understand right now. When you pick up the book, I interpret seven passages from the life of Jesus. And I frame it within the gospel of Jubilee. I, I want this book to be a gateway for anybody reading it to better understand Jesus and the gospels. If you fall in love with Jesus a little bit more, I've totally done my job. If you take the New Testament more seriously, if you get in the gospels more, I'm excited. And I just would encourage anybody that picks it up, find one of the seven practices that you're drawn to or that challenges you and read that chapter. Because it's meant to be read in that way too, where you're like, I really am busy. I really don't have a lot of time, but I want to make a difference. So great. Maybe you listen to this interview, just read a chapter and be like, okay, I'm going to try and practice this today. Even though I'm really tired, I'm overwhelmed, I'm busy, I'm broken. I can't do it. I really want people to be empowered to follow Jesus with whatever capacity they have. Okay. Is, is there a way people can continue kind of connecting with you? Um, I got your website in the, um, in the description box, but uh, yeah. if there's other ways they can yeah, get some stuff. For sure. Yeah, Instagram, jwbuck, jwbuck.org. Um, I help lead an organization called PAX, madeforpax.org. If you're looking for resources on migration, mental health, scripture, nonviolence, we have uh, entire publications online called The Story Arc where we talk about those and we dive into those really from a global and multicultural perspective. Um, so that's a, that's a, some of the places you can find me. I just want to say... Arthur, been amazing being on, dude. Thank you so much for having me. You're a blessing. And thanks for your work. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, next time I have you on, we're going to talk about nonviolence and violence. I, I think uh, that, that should be very interesting as to Let's how you, uh, you deal with some of that stuff, uh, especially in the Old Testament yep. context. Uh, so again, thanks. Because uh, <laughs> you know people are sitting there going, this guy's for nonviolence. Look at the God in the Old Testament. What's, what's he up to there? Uh, so... Folks, thank you guys yep. for watching. If, if you're watching the replay of this, um, I, I appreciate it. And then check out Josh's work, man. This is I'm telling you, um, there's plenty of stuff, I think, in the book that I'm questioning. I'm asking questions and saying, well, that's not like my perspective and stuff. But there's challenging stuff. There's stuff in the book where, like, I've been a Christian for like 20 years, and I'm very challenged by the idea that's being um, thrown my way here, right? Like this... Uh, the, the difficulty in understanding, the difficulty in practicing what some of these are. And, and that's the point of it. The Bible ought to continuously challenge us. And anyone that actually pushes us to be more biblical is worth reading, is worth studying and uh, listening to. So thank you, guys. I will see you guys tomorrow for the live Q&A. And with all that said, God bless you guys. I will see you later.